Welcome to season two of The Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. Two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs. In this show, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. On the 24th of August, 2010, Dan Kieran was a member of a partnered fighting patrol with soldiers of the Afghan National Army's 1st Kandak, 4th Brigade, 205th Hero Corps, which was engaged by a numerically superior and coordinated enemy attack from multiple firing points in three separate locations. The attack was initiated by a high volume of sustained and accurate machine gun and small arms fire, which pinned down the combined Australian and Afghan patrol and caused a loss of momentum. In the early stages of the attack, and upon realising the forward elements of the patrol needed effective fire support, the then Corporal Kieran and another patrol member moved under sustained and accurate enemy fire to an exposed ridgeline to identify enemy locations and direct the return fire of both Australian and Afghan machine guns. On reaching this position, and with complete disregard for his own well-being, Corporal Kieran deliberately drew enemy fire by leaving the limited cover he had and moving over the ridgeline in order to positively identify targets for the machine gunners of the combined patrol. After identifying some of the enemy firing positions, Corporal Kieran, under persistent enemy fire, continued to lead and mentor his team and move around the ridge to both direct the fire of the Afghan and Australian machine gunners and to move them to more effective firing positions. As the intensity of enemy fire grew, Corporal Kieran returned to the crest of the ridgeline to identify targets and adjust the fire of Australian light armoured vehicles. His actions resulted in the effective suppression of enemy firing points, which assisted in turning the fight in the favour of the combined patrol. Moving to a new position, Corporal Kieran deliberately and repeatedly again exposed himself to heavy enemy fire to assist in target identification and the marking of the forward line of troops for fire support elements, while simultaneously engaging the enemy. Realising that the new position provided a better location for the patrol's joint fire controller, Corporal Kieran moved over 100 metres across exposed parts of the ridgeline, attracting a high volume of accurate enemy fire to locate and move the fire controller to the new position. He then rose from cover, again, to expose his position on four successive occasions, each movement drawing more intense fire than the last in order to assist in the identification of a further three enemy firing points that was subsequently engaged by fire support elements. During one of these occasions, when his patrol sustained an Australian casualty, Corporal Kieran, with complete disregard for his own safety, left his position of cover on the ridgeline to deliberately draw fire away from the team treating the casualty. Corporal Kieran remained exposed 
and under heavy fire while traversing the ridgeline in order to directly suppress fire and then assist in the clearance of the landing zone to enable evacuation of the casualty. Corporal Kieran's acts of the most conspicuous gallantry to repeatedly expose himself to accurate and intense enemy fire, thereby placing himself in grave danger, ultimately enabled the identification and suppression of enemy firing positions by both Australian and Afghan fire support elements. These deliberate acts of exceptional courage in circumstances of great peril were instrumental in permitting the withdrawal of the combined Australian and Afghan patrol with no further casualties. His valour is in keeping with the finest traditions of the Australian Army and the Australian Defence Force. Corporal Daniel Kieran was awarded the Victoria Cross for Australia. Ladies and gentlemen, our guest on this episode of the Unforgiving 60 podcast is the subject of that incredible citation and the 100th Australian to be a recipient of the Victoria Cross, our nation's highest award for valour in the face of the enemy. We're very privileged this week to be joined by Daniel Kieran. Let's get on with the show. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Unforgiving 60. I'm standing here next to Tim Curtis. G'day, Tim. G'day, Ben. And we're joined online by Dan Kieran. Dan, how are you? Tim, Ben, look, great. Doing really well. Thanks for having me on your show today. Uh, our pleasure. Thank you for your time. Now, clearly, you've got a book just about to drop, and we're going to talk a lot about that. But in reviewing our, our sort of prep for this, I, I thought about my little daughter's doing sort of creative writing in primary school. And one thing that they say you've always got to have in every good story is a sizzling start. <laughs> and mate, I don't reckon I've read a more sizzling start than the one to your book. If you pick this thing up and read the first line, you're going to buy it. Mm-hmm. And I quote, cowboy was the first man I ever saw who'd been shot. He was my father. Absolute cracker, mate. Maybe that could be where we start in terms of providing a bit of background on your, your childhood and, and how this situation came about. You're making me laugh already. Look, that's so true. I, I hadn't met my dad like, well, I had when I was very little. I think he, he took off for about the third time when I was one or two years old and uh, left my mum and my sister, who was five years older than me and myself again, uh, high and dry. So he had a, a history of doing that. And it had been 10 years and... Uh, the phone rang one day, I was in Mullaney with my mum and sister and it was my dad and he was calling up, uh, he's actually, actually, I'll go back a step, it was his girlfriend. So my mum was still married to him, by the way. So my dad's girlfriend called up from the hospital and goes, you know, cowboy's been shot, uh, you know, he's, he's dying and this and that. Uh, it turned out he didn't die and two weeks later, somehow he managed to convince my mum that it was a good idea that he'd rock up and, and meet his kids. So he rocked up with a heap of dogs and, a, you know, horses and the whole works and, and he, he rolled in, he was still around while well. he checked him out at South Hospital. And uh, my dad, being who he was, convinced my mum that it was a good idea to sell up. <laughs> the last 10 years of her life sort of disappeared and uh, we moved to the bush. Mm. Now, you don't just need a sizzling start to the book, but you also need a villain. Was he one of the first villains that you came across? <laughs> uh, I wouldn't say he was a villain per se. I, I would say there's, there's two characters that I, I shine a light on. One was my dad and 
let's let's be honest, it was probably a negative influence in my life from a, a young age. And the other person was my grandfather, Alan Pyburn, who was an artillery sergeant in the Second World War. So he he was my hero. Uh, he was someone that I looked up to. And those are the two figures, I suppose, early on in the book that, that really do set the scene for, for where it goes. Yeah. Mm. I was just going to say, within any sort of role model, I guess you get the good and the bad, and and it, it sounds certainly the book does a great job of describing Cowboys' rough edges. But <laughs> did you get some good stuff from him as well? Yeah, look, absolutely, and and I have, I've said that repeatedly over the years. Some of the situations that I have found myself in around the world, I look back at my time with my dad, and he prepared me. And look, I think he exposed me is probably a better word. Exposed me to things. <laughs> of a certain type of character that I that I would not have been exposed to without his influence, right? So I look at that as a positive because it was later on, I would say that, yeah, absolutely probably saved my life potentially with the situations where I wasn't as trusting as maybe I would have been if I hadn't had those experiences when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about love in the family? Your, your mother, you talk wonderfully about in the book, clearly a mm. phenomenal heart in your mother. Not only did she love you and your sister, but also your dad um, and then your grandfather. Could we talk about how those things built um, love for you and maybe also how you've used that in, in being a father yourself? Look, I think yeah, well, a number of things from, from that relationship early on. Love, absolutely. It's personal ethos, core values instilled in me from a young age. All of those things I look at. I get from my grandfather's influence and my mother's influence always been there, always supporting me. Even though I was horrendous sometimes at doing things, she was always there as, as mothers always are as well, but supporting me through, through thick and thin. And look, I, you know, she worked a number of jobs, cleaning jobs. She, she did what she had to do to put food on the table. Uh, and, it, and it was tough. It was tough as a kid growing up. I first memories of a kid uh, of cockroaches scurrying around a little apartment that we had, the chipboard that was rotting, like, but mum with a rag cleaning still and, you know, always making progress. So that's, a, I suppose, the type of I suppose, personality and, and lady that she was. And, you know, I do love her greatly and hopefully she has an opportunity to hear that. So love you, mum. Uh, but then there's my, uh, my grandfather as well. As I said, that personally thoughts and core values. I, I very much look to him and, and still do now, even, even after he's, he's passed away of, of what I was and what he turned me into before joining defense and, and opening my eyes and horizon to, to bettering yourself is I think that probably the sort of what underpins the story realistically is as a kid that grew up the way I did to, to what I'm doing now. And, and it starts with my grandfather's influence, that positive role model. And, and your grandfather was very present in your life. He was maybe the one consistent thing. Um, you know, you enjoyed fishing with him um, he also served, but it sounds like he wasn't really pushing you to join the military. He was informing decisions, but generally quite wide professional decisions that you had to make. Look, absolutely. And uh, you know, I think I'm jumping all over the place here, but it wasn't, I think it was about six, uh, 15, probably 15 years, 15, 16 years old at that point in time. And I had realized a number of years before that, that he had served, but he he'd kept it quiet. You know, I don't think he was entirely happy with some of the actions that he undertook, some of the scenarios that he found himself in. And he didn't really open up about it until I had joined and until I had signed up. And then he started to talk about, I suppose, the highs and lows a man goes through in the service of his country. So for me, you know, I there was a part of my grandfather's life that I had no idea about until 
until I decided to take that course myself of joining defense. Now, I, I still think there was a lot that he didn't, didn't say. Uh, a, lot, a lot was left unsaid about his experiences, but I think it got to the point where I was in low mead where there wasn't very many options for me. You know, my dad's influence of growing drugs, uh, limited employment options, let's be honest, that low socioeconomic sort of area. And that's nothing against the people below me. Like, love that place still. And, that, you know, it's, it's why I am the way I am. But there wasn't that many options there. And I wasn't interested in going to university. Uh, the Army Defence provided an, an out for me. It provided, and that's what I look at it back even to this day, is it provided me an opportunity to, to change my stars and, and get away from potentially what would have ended up mm. being my life. And it's funny, I mean, it's an age-old story, but it's something that keeps coming up in our discussions. We spoke with Wayne Jones um, a number of weeks ago, and very similar sort of uh, reflections, small town in South Australia, and and the army was a a way of getting out and getting those new skills. And I've always found interesting um, the, you know, some of the parallels between your story and Dono's in Mm. terms of some of the family issues. Sorry, Mark Donaldson, VC, uh, author of the book Crossroad, which... um, tells a, a really interesting story of his childhood as well and and some uh, interesting parallels there in terms of the family life the situation that that kind of acted to as a catalyst to joining the army look there are i have i have read and i, and I know mark donaldson as well and uh, he actually wrote a you know a very nice uh, bit for the forward so mark i appreciate that cheers mate but i i look i i did i i grew up pretty rough guys i grew up pretty rough and as i said the wouldn't say the villain it was my dad that was in that space and then my grandfather's influence. And I, I often would wonder, and I still wonder where, what I would turn out or what I would have turned out like if I, if I hadn't had that positive influence, if I hadn't had that sounding board, that, that mentor in my life from a young age. Mm. And that's what my grandfather was. He would not push me, as you said, to join defence. However, he would, he would start raising questions of, you know, not what are you going to do, Dan? <laughs> it's, you know, what, you know, what, 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 what options do you have? Like he just, the way he phrased it, you know, someone that was very relatable, someone that you could talk to for hours, someone that I, you know, I would, I would just, you know, love to bits and spend so much time with because, you know, he, he just looked at things differently and it resonated with me as a young kid. Mm-hmm. Before we get you in uniform, <laughs> I don't think we can close this part of your life off without some stories from Lowmead. Could you talk about what the living arrangements were at Lowmead and the routine at home? Yeah, look, absolutely, guys. So, so when I when we first rocked up, I had no idea. And I think my mum, let's be honest, my mum had no idea what she was walking into. But <laughs> we, we got up to uh, to Lowmead and my grandfather drove me up actually and uh, there was a sign on the road and we, we drove in and it was a it was a virgin block. So it was it wasn't cleared, there was you know, the barbed wire fences were sort of down around it and here's a shack. Literally it was a shack that my dad had had cut down some trees with a chainsaw, thrown up. It's a, a tarp that you get for $2 from the old dollar shop, strung up and made in there's a caravan that leaking and rusted. And it was, it was, it was a, how to describe it. It was dirt floors. It was no mains power. Uh, you know, it was rough. I, I remember my dad acquiring, I'll say acquiring it, let's be honest. He stole it from somewhere, some carpet. And, and I remember as a kid, and it, it is in the book, in fact, of me with a hammer bashing the rocks back down through the carpet into the earth's surface because they'd protrude through the carpet because it was literally just laid across the dirt and rocks and then banged some poles up and had a bit of a tarp over the top and then a, a shed later on, you know, then started this sprawling, I don't know, shanty, you'd probably think, right? It's <laughs> just a little room here and there and 
uh, like, yeah, it was rough. I remember straining my drinking water actually at one point. Um, when I say straining, there was a tea we used to, to strain tea leaves, but mm. the rainwater tank had a, it was only half a rainwater tank top. The other half was rusted out. So mosquito larvae would get in there and lay eggs. So you get the Wrigley's in there, right? And uh, my dad said they were protein. I'm like, yeah, that's not for me. <laughs> so I'd strain the Wrigley's out before drinking my water. But, you know, that was just what it was for the first sort of few years of, of going to Lomeet. And in my upbringing as a kid, I'd, I'd take a bike if we ever had petrol for it or horse or a couple of dogs, go out shooting, sleep, just sleep rough. That was just, just the way it was. We'll get into uh, joining the army next, but I imagine you, when you, you joined, you must have had a leg up in terms of the field exercises and the ability to deal with you know minor discomforts oh, or major ones. And the city slickers. Yeah. Uh, look, look, brutally honest, fellas, I did not find recruit training or you know, school of infantry that, that you know, what, what you go through very arduous at all. Like it, it, from my upbringing as a kid, you know, I'd work from sun up to sundown. I'd, you know, my, I had blisters all over my hands. You know, I was, I think my biggest downfall was, as I was, you know, I put on a few kilos now, but I think I joined, I was maybe 70 kilos. So I was, I was skinny. There's some photos sticking around somewhere. It's, that's horrendous. Uh, I look back now, I go, Jesus, what, what was going on there? But I, I looked like I needed a good feed, but it, it, it was, I think the upper body strength, I think let me down a, a lot actually early on because I just didn't, just didn't have that endurance. Uh, you know, I was wiry, as they say, I could run all day and, but uh, yeah, some of the, the ropes and obstacle courses, I think, were a little bit, I wouldn't say tough for me, but I, I probably struggled compared to other people. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I struggled, but for me, you know, that was probably the hardest element of it, some of the physical things um, for the first sort of few years until I built that strength. And, and how did you find it? Was it, um, you, you mentioned you didn't find it that difficult, but was it sort of a shock to the system? Was it a welcome environment in terms of having that kind of structure and, and almost that familial sort of relationship with people in the platoon? Uh, what, what were your impressions when you, you got to Kapuka and then Singleton? Yeah, it looks like a puka. I mean, they got off the bus as you do, and the yelling started. I think before I'd even got off the bus, but my dad was a yeller. I was used to that. I, you know, someone screaming in your face it doesn't even phase me. I'm, you know, the swearing, the, everything else associated with trying to provoke a reaction from someone. I was used to that. Like that was that was just completely normal, absolutely. And then the the long hours, I was used to that as well. I, I think the for me the the classroom lessons. But again, I was seventeen, so I was still seventeen years old. I'd just mm. finished high school. I, you know, I hadn't been corrupted. <laughs> I hadn't really started drinking or anything at that point in time. Wasn't allowed to. Uh, you know, I, I was a young kid that wanted to learn and wanted to be there, and I had nothing holding me back. Uh, what I mean by that, I, you know, some of the people who had, you know, partners separated from their children and had all these other aspects associated with with them joining defence and a whole other life out there and, and concerns. And you know, for me, it was it was like, yeah, see you later. I'm gone. And I was completely 100% at that point in time involved and invested in, in my training. So I didn't really have any outside influences at all. So I, that's what I mean. I found it pretty easy. Mm. And so Singleton, uh, for our listeners, is the School of Infantry. So uh, mm. Daniel had obviously been allocated to the Infantry Corps and from there into a battalion. Yeah, look, that's right. I mean, the, the, the training-wise, I mean, I, I think it's pretty standard for everyone, the, the ups and downs that you go through, the sleep deprivation, the arduous taskings to see how you act under pressure. I think it's pretty standard for, for most people that go through. Yep. Uh, you know, I, I, I look back at those times and, you know, I still have friendships from that point in time. So it is 
truly, you know, 20, it's getting old now, 20 years ago now, nearly that I, you know, I've still got those mates uh, in my life and still maintain contact with them. So that's, mm-hmm. I suppose, the, the bond that's forged through your service and, and shared experiences. First deployment into East Timor, how did you find that deployment? So, uh, but I always say this, well, I've said this before previously, is that you, you know, you train all the time for something and, you know, you finally get the opportunity to go off the bench and, and do something. And for me, that was uh, East Timor. So that was supporting United Nations. Uh, look, there was no combat whatsoever when I got there, 0304. Uh, you know, we were going out doing long ass patrols uh, and you'd wonder what the purpose was sometimes. So, you know, it's been a couple of weeks out sort of humping around and, and I was probably only 70 kilos still back then. I was on the, I was carrying the machine gun and, you know, I think all of my kit, I was probably carrying 68 kilos. So I was nearly my own body weight humping around. Uh, so it wasn't great. <laughs> it wasn't a great experience raining every second day, uh, a good bunch of blokes, a uh, good team, great team in fact. But I, for me, I look back and it was, I was fortunate to have an experience like that where it was a low threat environment. You know, I look at that and I learned a lot about myself, my leadership style. I learned a lot about other team members uh, as well and who, would I, who I would later on serve with. So I think it was a good stepping stone to solidify some of the training and, and understand more of who I was, a per, who I was as a person um, through that process. But it was a, uh, you know, it was an eye opener anyway for me. It was my first time that I'd, uh, been in a you know i suppose i wouldn't call it a war zone but it been on operations where you, you are carrying a, a weapon around every day and you know there is a threat a potential threat there so i mean it, it was for me uh you know it was an exciting time in my mm. career yeah and i think with the benefit of hindsight it from a military like a contemporary soldiers perspective it's easy to look back uh after having gone through afghanistan and iraq and these sort of things and think oh timor nothing much happened but at that point, I mean, the Australian Army really hadn't had any big deployments since Vietnam, been sort of Somalia and Rwanda and Cambodia and that. And Timor was a massive watershed in terms of getting that operational experience. And I think organisationally, even just, you know, the logistics and the back end and the rotations and sort of working all that stuff out. So, yeah, I, I recall being sort of super excited about Timor um, and finding it exactly that. You know, this is the first time in an operational zone um, as a as a really good experience as a young soldier. Look, absolutely, and I think it, you know, as I said, it built my skills from that point in point in time as well as a soldier. So I, you know, it was something to look forward to, and there was a, a again a renewed purpose in training and, and focus in training and and doing everything a hundred percent to get you to a standard where you you know you could deal with anything. So that's you know I look at it as a, a very positive step certainly in my career to prepare me later on for what I'd what I'd have to face. And what you had to face started in 2006, if I'm not mistaken, when you deployed to Iraq. Very different topography and very different threat. Um, I think that was also the first time that you were in contact. Can you talk to yeah. us about Iraq? Yeah, yeah, look, absolutely. More than happy to was. Like, I, uh, yeah, again, you, I mean, you get all these briefs, right? When you're back in Australia about the, the, the IED threat and, and this and that, and you, you get into country. And, and then, you know, I still remember the ramp coming down uh, as we, you know, we flew in. And the, the, the physical blow it felt like of getting hit in the face with a heat wave. Now, I thought it was a wash from the props. No, it wasn't. It was just, it was just, <laughs> a, it was just Iraq. It was just desert. It was just hot. And that's how I was going to stay the whole time I was there. So a completely different environment to, to walking around the jungle with a backpack on. A vehicle operations, I was, 
I was aware that I, I needed to get a, a Bushmaster. So Bushmaster is a, an armoured fighting vehicle uh, ticket to drive one of these things in a crew commander because I knew it was uh, the hot item to have to be able to get deployed. That's how I looked at it. Uh, hmm. You know, those that had that that ticket would have a higher chance of getting deployed on operations. So it was a numbers game that I, that I looked at it like that. So I was fortunate enough to, to have one of these these uh, driving uh, tickets and. That's why I got that got the trip essentially um, for the role that I was in supporting uh, the Second Battalion Royal Australian Regiment over there, and it was it was a very different uh, role to what I'd done previously. It was vehicle mounted the majority of the time. Uh, well, for me, it was probably 90, 90 something percent of the time was vehicle mounted operations, whereby we'd have our dismounts in the back with two R and they, they'd go out and do their you know their patrolling operations, uh, disruption disruption operations. So the first time I actually got shot at, I was. I was behind the Mag 58, so for whatever reason, I was in the, the front cupola or gun ring. And uh, I remember hearing this, this sound on, on the metal plating, and I honestly thought it was someone had a sledgehammer was hitting the outside of the, the plating. I remember because you've got to get a cavalry uh, headset on at that point and saying, what the who's making, you know, who's making that noise? Who's stuffing around the back? Stop that. Come on, you know, stop playing around. And it turned out that, well, it was someone shooting at us. It was a, the sound of an AK-47 round strapping the back plate of the, the armour. And I'm like, Jesus, uh, that, was a, that was the first experience of getting shot at. And I'm like, what's going on, fellas? Stop digging around. So, so that, you know, it was, only, it was only a few rounds. But I think from that point in time, it had been probably in country three months. and you know, every time you went out, sorry, this, sorry, that, and yeah. you'd see the burnout vehicles on the side of the road. That those that, that hadn't been as fortunate, some of them were coalition vehicles, some of them were civilian vehicles. But for us, that was for us and my my team. That was the first time we'd actually been shot at. And then two weeks later, we went back into that that same location for a prolonged engagement. When I say prolonged engagement. For me, it was back then. I think it was about thirty five minutes of of two opposing forces coming together, and you know, fixed wing assets been involved, and labs been involved, and and actually firing the weapon system for the first time in the 58, you know, employing the weapon system for the first time. So for me, again, I, you know, a stepping stone for my career in a way where, you know, it started off pretty gentle and pretty safe environment, United Nations operations to Iraq, whereby it wasn't safe, let's be honest, but it, it wasn't full on combat every day to what it would, would be like later on in Afghanistan and some of the places and some of the things I did. So for me, it was, you know, it was the adrenaline rush of the unknown of the, someone, actually trying to kill you um, moment going, wow, okay, this is, uh, this is pretty real. Uh, so for me, you know, I, I look back at that time and, you know, it was, again, it was at the time of excitement. Um, again, had a really good team supporting me. So it, for Iraq for me sort of flew by uh, a lot of, <laughs> a lot of gym time at that point in time as well. We, you know, we'd go out with a lot of convoy protection from point A to point B looking after assets, you know, I got out, I think, probably several times only to do dismounted patrolling. So I get all the drivers together and we go out. We, we weren't equipped properly, so that was that was great. We had all our you know, crazy body armor that we had to wear back then and neck protectors and this and that. Mm -hmm. I, I look mm -hmm. back now and thought if we actually had got shot at while I was on the ground, I would have been stuffed just because I wouldn't have been able to, <laughs> to move, move with all the crap we were supposed to carry. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't even be able to take a sight picture. So... Uh, so I look back at, at that time as well and, and sort of I'm thankful that nothing serious, well, when I say serious, sort of happened to, to me while I was dismounted, but it, it was, again, a time of learning. It's funny you drew the distinction between the IED threat and the, the small arms or direct contact threat, and I 
always remember thinking like you could handle someone shooting at you because you'd, you'd sort of been trained for that and you could give a bit back. But I always found the IEDs a really unsettling sort of threat because A, you never knew when it would happen, I suppose, like anything. But B, there was not a lot you could do in retaliation. And I imagine driving around, particularly Iraq at that time, um, you know, you're exposed to it day in, day out. How, how did you deal with that? Look, I, I think I was pretty... I think I've always been pretty good at dealing with the unknown, the threat of, or the risk associated with with what we do as soldiers. So I remember saying something years ago now to a bloody reporter and something about, you know, you're looking for disturbed earth and, you know, you still do it when you get back to Australia for a couple of weeks because you're mm. so attuned to it. You know, next minute, you know, oh, you know, got PTSD or something about, you know, my, my return to service. But not at all. It's just because you are so accustomed to a, a routine of, you are absolutely looking for IEDs. You're looking for the signs that something could go wrong. Because I tell you what, there's a real possibility of that happening every time you go outside the wire. So for me, I, I accepted that risk and, and I, I was always, you know, if I had my head out the top of the vehicle, I tell you what, I was always looking for those signs. I was looking for the people that were moving or, you know, you know, suspicious activity. Absolutely. Because, mm. you know, if you had that opportunity to say something or see something and, and at least you know, make note of it or, or tell someone about it, you know, there's a potential that to save someone's life as well. So for me, I, I looked at it as well, and there's not much I can do about it if I roll over one of these things. Um, and I think they was using EFP, so explosive form projectiles back mm. then as well. And, and it was, you know, reports of using 200 kilos of, of homemade explosives. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm pretty much stuffed if that, if I hit something like that. So I, I acknowledged the, the risk and just accepted it, mate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that those EFPs were going through main battle tanks, and if Saddam did one thing, he certainly invested heavily in that tier of, um, you know, the sort of middle tier, the highly professional engineers, and um, they had some phenomenal capability. Mm. Um, and if you want to know what it's like to be blown up with an improvised explosive device, we interviewed McQuilty Quirk and Coco. Um, was attacked with an IED in, mm. in Afghanistan and, and died three times. So anyone that doesn't, <laughs> isn't sure about how yeah. that ends up, um, listen to it. Yeah, sorry, boys. I was about to say Coco. I'd like to shout out and say g'day because I was in Delta Company with Coco. And oh, no went, kidding. When I actually went fishing with him and my grandfather while he was still alive. So uh, oh, I, I know him well. So sorry, boys. Get Crack on. No, that's cool. Um, so out of Iraq, 2006, and then... You have to collect your passport again because in 2007, in you go to Afghanistan to support the Special Operations Task Group. Different role. Could you talk about that deployment? Yeah, look, absolutely. Was I? I wasn't expecting that at all. I'd got back from from operations, and it was it was a quick turnaround. When I say quick turnaround, usually there's a I don't know six months at least before they send you back. Often, but I think I was in country, maybe in country as in back in Australia for maybe four, three and a half months. And my mate, uh, Tar Finson at the time, he just got back from a rotation and they obviously asked him and go, hey, ask, you know, ask around battalion who's got a bit of experience that we want to send some, some lads across again to, to support the, the special forces. And my name somehow got pulled out of a hat. Uh, he brought me forward. He goes, yeah, Dan just got back from Iraq. I've worked with him before. So that's sort of how, how those operations sort of worked or how you got picked for those things of, I've just been, I suppose, been at the right time, but also, you know, having a bit of, bit of time up as well so but I a very different deployment completely supporting role uh I don't think I fired my weapon once the entire time there but I, I got shot out so many times <laughs> uh uh you know there's 
completely, di- you know, complete different operations. And I think back then there were quantifiers, kill capture missions, going after high value targets. They, they weren't doing the helicopter assault force stuff at that point in time. It was literally driving around with the, the battle wagons and the mogs and, and we'd, you know, we'd go out for a number of weeks at, at a time and you'd do a number of direct actions after, after these high value targets. And my job was to drive one of these vehicles. I, I tell you what, I, I went over there and I, in fact, I pulled my application. So I was, I was actually applying at that point in time. I'll, I was, you know, had that vision of applying at that point in time of, of doing that. And I was pretty fit. So I'd been training a lot, probably six, you know, over in Iraq and I'd, I'd, I'd got myself to a pretty good standard of fitness. And, uh, I was about to go and do the barrier testing and then the, that, that opportunity came up. So I pulled my application. I'll tell you what, I probably lost 20 kilos <laughs> in five and a half months over there. I lived on rippets, which is like a Red Bull equivalent. Uh, and mate, I've never done so many hours in my life. I don't know. We'd do 20 hour days often where you're driving, like driving most of the night and still do a security picket where the boys are sleeping in the back during the day no worries lads sleeping sleeping and we're driving all day and then 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 we'd uh they'd jump out and go and do their hit and we'd you know we'd still be waiting for them to come back and then drive again to the next next spot and sleep for a few hours so it was you know by no means was it we're at risk compared to what other guys were but i, I haven't worked that hard in a long time put it that way mm. <laughs> so but it was very different operations yeah and out of afghanistan after that tour and then we go back in again in 2010 and you're in a different role going back into country. Can you talk about what rank you held there and how that looked when you went back into Afghanistan? Yes, we know, we know, we know. That was just teasing. Well, thanks for listening to part A of Daniel Kieran VC, where we talked about his upbringing and the start to his military career. In part B, we'll talk with Dan about his second tour into Afghanistan, including the details of the action in which he was awarded his Victoria Cross, and importantly, how that has changed his life. See you next time on The Unforgiving 60. All you businessmen, politicians, get around and meet my friends. Folks come here tonight to listen in to you justify your sins Well, you smoke too much, you drink too much, you're blind
to the debrief. We strive for continuous improvement and greatly appreciate your insights and feedback. Also, if you know someone who is living that life less ordinary, please tell us. You can get in touch at debrief at unforgiving60.com. That's debrief at unforgiving60.com. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends and write a review for us on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow and engage with us on social media. Just search for Unforgiving 60 on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Until next episode, keep filling your unforgiving minutes with 60 seconds worth of distance run. See you next time on the Unforgiving 60.